Radio. This is Catholics Read on cradio.org.au. Hello and welcome to this episode of Catholics Read. I'm Luke. And I'm Kiara. And I'm Victoria. And today we are reading The Great Gatsby, which many of our listeners may know, well, because it's a really good and famous book, but also because Baz Luhrmann, Australian. Bazza. Bazza o' Lazza. No, no. All right, stop, 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 Okay, let's, stop. Yeah, let's stop that. <laughs> but anyway, he made, a, he made a film, right, of this. Okay. But the book, the book is fantastic. I quite liked it. I mean, that's just my opinion. But anyway, we'll quickly jump into what's it about, Victoria. This is this was your choice. Um, this what's, is my choice. This about? is one of my favorite books. I'm I was obsessed with F. Scott Fitzgerald in high school. In fact, I did my thesis on him and his wife for extension history. And um, anyway, the book is about. Gosh, it's about many things. It's one of those things where if you ask different people, they could say it's about completely different things. But essentially, it is about uh, from the point of view of this man, Nick Carraway. Um, it's in the 1920s, um, start of the Roaring Twenties, you know, prosperity in America. And he moves to uh, West Egg, which is an island off um, New York. And he has this neighbor who owns this mansion who holds parties every week. These massive parties, like... Knock down, drag out, blowouts. Yeah. They're car in, crashes. They're, they're, before <laughs> car crashes were like a common thing. Yeah, they're, they're opulent. They're grandeur. They're, they're huge. And he gets invited around to one of these parties and he meets the man who owns this house, uh, Gatsby, um, of whom the book is named after. And um, basically it's just a story about Gatsby, Gatsby's story of perseverance and his uh, determination to reclaim this woman from his life that he lost, who happens to be Nick's um, cousin. I'm probably not doing this well. Oh, well, yes. Yeah. So, so um, Nick's cousin, her name is Daisy. Uh, she's a married woman. Daisy who's... Buchanan, not Butchanan, as I was saying for like three years of my life. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Butchanan. You know, Daisy Buchanan. <laughs> Daisy Buchanan. Um, and so five years prior, back when Gatsby uh, was an officer in the military prior to... And very poor. Yes, prior to the First World War, spoiler alert, prior to the First World War, uh, had a, about a month-long relationship with her and then was sent off to the war and could not get back um, for a while from Europe. Uh, and in the meantime, Daisy kind of lost her patience and ended up marrying a man named Tom Buchanan. Uh, he's he's a not jerk. a... Yeah, let's go with that word. He's a jerk. <laughs> Basically, all the he's descriptions a fat, of him. Polo playing jerk. Yes. Oh, he's not fat. He's he's a he's no. He muscly. he's he's like he's, he's like um, fat in the head. Commonly called a brute, and his the descriptive words are all quite animalistic he's, when he's they talk in, about he's him. Fat in the head. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not entirely sure what you mean by that. But... Fat in the head. He's got a big head. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's good. You know, and he's uh, not he's not particularly bright either. I mean, he kind of gives the illusion of being bright. He, but... is, he is exactly what my great grandmother would have described as a fat head. There we go. Your great grandmother. Yes. I mean, it might be a period term then. Perhaps. Fathead. Perhaps. Um, but she routinely called us children fathead when, she, when we annoyed her, which was all the time. There you go. She was really, really lovely. She adored us, but we used to scare her awake from her naps. Well, that, that's, it's understandable why she would react then. Yes. <laughs> anyway, so it's about how Gatsby basically begins um, 
woos and begins an affair with uh, <coughs> Daisy. And then this all comes to a head. Um, I should also point out that Tom Buchanan is also having an affair uh, with a mistress. Because he's a jerk. Yeah. Um, <laughs> from uh, the Ash Heaps. Where is it? It's off it's, Long Island um, somewhere. It's, no, it's, it's a it's poor a, area. It's, a, it's, between, it's between Manhattan and Long Island. And Long Island. So. Basically, people commuting from either West Egg or East Egg uh, to New York will pass through the Valley of Ashes, mm. yeah. which is where Myrtle and... Um, Who's the woman who uh, Myrtle Tom and is having a her husband, with. Mr. Wilson, uh, live uh, atop a garage in, yes. in some form of poverty. So, yeah, basically... Um, Gatsby manages to create a situation where he finally has a confrontation with Tom Buchanan, with Tom Buchanan, uh, with Nick and uh, Daisy's good friend, who is Jordan Baker, sort the of the girlfriend golfer. of Nick. It kind of happens on. And it's on. basically the prototype of every relationship we see in modern times. Jordan yeah. Baker and yeah, um, it's a bit Nick Carraway off. They're a bit like. They're, they're it's a bit friendly. casual. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. But not casual at the same I'm time. Sure, um, I'm sure Mark <laughs> Barnes could probably write a blog post about that or something, which Please would be do. amazing. But yes. Um, <laughs> Luke's not a fan. Just saying. Not a fan? <laughs> Sarcasm. Sarcastic oh, okay. note. Right. Right. <laughs> Luke's See, that was, totally not, not a fan. Not a fan. <laughs> so much of a fan. Anyway, 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 anyway. He signed my football. Anyway. Um, <laughs> anyway. So, but this unfortunately blows up in Gatsby's face because it is revealed that uh, he really didn't become this great millionaire out of legitimate means, but basically by being a bootlegger. Uh, like bootlegging uh, alcohol, alcohol during prohibition. Um, I think and- we've skipped over a bit of an important fact. The, uh, the fact that um, Gatsby holds these parties every week is in the hope that one day Daisy, who is very affluent, uh, we'll, we'll rock up. We'll rock up to one of these parties. It's the only reason he's been holding them every yes. weekend for I don't know, maybe about a year since thereabouts. That yeah. seems to be what it, what it is. Um, because he knows she... that he lives across the bay from her. Um, and so yes, this yeah. all blows up uh, in his face. Um, and on the way back from Manhattan, where this whole confrontation happens, that Daisy admits that she lo- has loved Gatsby the whole time, but will not admit that she never loved Tom Buchanan, which is what Gatsby which wants. Which is her only her. gutsy moment, I think, in the whole book, yeah. to be completely honest. Yeah. Um, and on the way back, um, Gatsby's car runs over Myrtle, the uh, mistress of Tom Buchanan, and to no one's knowledge except Gatsby and eventually Nick and Daisy. It was actually Daisy driving the car, but Gatsby seems to take the fall. Mr. Wilson, Myrtle's husband, deduces from this, uh, I'm not entirely sure how, but he deduces from this that Gatsby was in fact the person having the affair with his wife. Tom Buchanan helps a little bit. Mm. Yes, yes. And let's not- go, he's, let's slip a few details. Yeah, yeah. And so Tom Buchanan, of course, is the person who actually is having the affair, but Mr. Mr. Wilson thinks it's Gatsby, finds out where his house is and kills Gatsby. And that's basically it. Um, it's all very tragic in the end. It's very sad. There's a lot of feels. There's a lot of feels. Feels is the word. There's a lot I of think. details as well. We didn't give the book half its no, plot, No, no, really, we're a bit back and that's forth. The but then again, the book is a bit back and forth as it well. It is. So it definitely is. What I wanted to talk about first is something that really fascinated me uh, quite a bit about this book, and that is that it is from the perspective of, uh, of Nick Carraway who, as I mentioned, is going out with Jordan. Uh, And it's quite interesting because 
he's a character that he's not a particularly good morally character, but he kind of sits in this position where he's able to see through people. He's able to see through the transparencies of people. And you're able to see this really well in the way that he speaks in this book. Um, I'm not sure. Chiara kind of mentioned that she thought it was a bit annoying. Um, I, I, I'm not, look, to be honest, I am not a huge fan of first per- first person narratives unless I really particularly like the person who is narrating. And, and I have to say, problem. I don't quite like Nick Carraway yeah, yeah. all that much. I think he's, look, don't get me wrong, I have, I've, I kind of respect him and all that sort of stuff as a character and that sort of thing, but I don't particularly like him. So, again, I haven't read as much of the book as I thought I had because uni got got a bit ahead of me this week, but I found it difficult to get into because of that reason. So if you're not a big fan of first-person narratives, then this is not going to be the easiest book in the world for you to read. Um and I mean, look, if there was some interesting, uh, there was some interesting bits, but there are also some bits where I just like, I really don't care anymore. You got to be quiet now. Like, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, that that said, if you do like first person narrative, I think this is this is brilliant. Then this, this is, is the, a this brilliant is example. One of the of best it. examples. I'd like to of point it. out, I fall into that heap of heap of people. So yes, it's incredible yes. if you love first person yeah. narrative. Yeah, yeah. And, and and that's why and that's why I do actually quite like the book, all things considered, because it is a beautiful, well written, and clever. Mm. Um, oh, Edward Fitzgerald, fantastic writer. Like, seriously, I need to read more of this guy. But what I wanted to speak about was that something that the book really does well and Fitzgerald really does fantastically is that he's able to draw you into this story and draw you into the persons and the characters of this story. And sort of going from my philosophy perspective here um, <laughs> is looking at the philosophy of the human person, how we can know people because I think this really points it out well. The Catholic philosopher, contemporary philosopher, Eleanor Stump, speaks about that there are two types of knowledge of persons. Knowledge in general, but specifically within knowledge of persons. There's what she rather tongue-in-cheek calls uh, Dominican knowledge and Franciscan knowledge. <laughs> Which is quite funny. Um, if you know, oh dear. <laughs> you can, you, you, you'll, be able, you'll be able to see, as I describe it, why she's called it that. So, Dominican knowledge is really this kind of knowledge about a person. So, those kinds of things that you can really put into words quite easily. So, a person who has, say, brown hair, brown eyes, um, they have pale skin, they have X job, they do Y on the weekend, they are of Z temperament, etc., etc. Whereas Franciscan knowledge is something that's really hard to describe, and it's what she describes as knowledge of. Um, And it's particularly the kind of knowledge of a person you can't articulate unless you're in their presence and even like then it's... biblical knowledge I guess I don't know what <laughs> I don't know if what you're talking about there Kiara Oh yes you do biblical knowledge to know someone biblically Oh no 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 that would that would be the height of Oh it. that would be a that... Hi- that would be the height I guess of it but it's not necessarily... well it would be a height I was of making it a joke. It would be a height of it <laughs> No but uh, seriously I reckon you could talk a lot about, about that. About biblical knowledge. About, bibli- about what it is means to know someone <laughs> in a biblical sense, because I think that that would have a lot to do with it. And it's about this kind of sense of, to use an example, that you can know everything there is to know about a person by reading about them, just their bare facts. But if until you meet a person, you don't know everything there is to know of them, because there's certain a thing about a person's essence or their presence that can only be known 
through experience with them. It's kind of an experiential knowledge. I suppose the modern equivalent would be like uh, seeing someone's dating site profile versus actually meeting yes, them in real be, life. Yes, because absolutely. the dating profile can tell you a lot about a person. It can tell you know photos, all that sort of stuff. Although people Long can walks be, on the beach. Yeah, that kind of stuff. Although it can be quite deceiving and shallow. So meeting them in real person in real life is actually when you gain a real sense of you know what this person really is and it's one of the things I think we've tended to what's the word we've tended to um it's harder for humans to do it's harder to be to have knowledge of someone so we tend to settle for knowledge about someone Mm. and you know in our very very fast-paced digital world so you know all that yeah yeah and in order like if you have I'm, I'm going on a bit of a tangent here but love between persons cannot simply be knowledge about. It cannot simply no. be Dominican knowledge. It has to be Franciscan knowledge. And these aren't opposed. They work together. Mm-hmm. But they work together to give the full knowledge of a person. Now, something that Eleanor Stump talks about, and this is where we're relating it back to the book here, is how do we communicate this experience of a kind of Franciscan knowledge of a person? How can we communicate what she describes as second person uh, second-person knowledge or second-person experience of a person because you can't really articulate it. You can't write out a thesis on it because it's impossible. You can't, you can't articulate it. The way that she says that you can communicate this experience of experiencing a person in Franciscan knowledge is through narrative. Mm-hmm. And I think and a fantastic. What, yes. bit, what, what bit are you reading? And I think a fantastic. I've got two bits here. Okay. I bet you it's one of the same. Okay, I'm not sure, but the one that I want to explain here is um, when Nick is describing Jordan. Um, oh, it's not what I have. Oh, okay, okay. Well, this I thought was a really fantastic example of it. So he talks about how Jordan Baker is quite a dishonest woman, and he finds this very attractive about her. Now. A dishonest woman, okay, that's that's Dominican knowledge right there. She's a dishonest woman. But he then also uses a narrative to describe her dishonesty. And he says, At her first big golf tournament, there was a row that nearly reached the newspapers, a suggestion that she had moved her ball from a bad lie in the semi-final round. The thing approached the proportions of a scandal, then died away. A caddy retracted his statement, and the only other witness admitted that he might have been mistaken. The incident and the name had remained together in my mind. Now, why I... That's a really small example, but why I put that there is because you can describe someone as dishonest, but when you describe it in terms of a narrative that she's moved her ball from a bad lie in a golf tournament, that gives you a bit more of an indication of what kind of dishonest she is, um, that you can't articulate in merely descriptive words. And there's plenty of examples in this book. There's a million and one... Well, maybe not a million, but there's a lot of examples in this. Um, and another one that I wanted to speak about, I don't know if you had one, Victoria. No, I thought you were going looking. along a completely different line of thoughts. So that's okay. So I'm really oh, glad no, you're no, going no. along this. Okay, okay. Well, the other example that I wanted to use was Nick does this. This is why I found this book really fascinating is because Nick's ability to see through people, his ability to see people as transparent means that he does this a lot. He's really able to communicate this knowledge of because he describes people and their actions in much more depth and detail that yes is Dominican knowledge, because it's a lot of uh, a lot of detail about them. But he uses examples and the way that he recounts these these memories of his. You're able to get a real impression of the type of people, and it's usually not good. They're usually mm-hmm. not good people. So another example of this uh, I find is when Nick is describing uh, a kind of mini party scene where he's there with um, 
with Tom Buchanan and his mistress and a couple of the neighbours from the apartment that they're sort of partying at together. And what it is about this is it really is able to describe just the the vapidness of these people um, in a way that you couldn't simply describe in descriptive words. Or by saying they're vapid. Yeah, yeah, you get much more of an impression from this. And this this happens a lot in this book. So Myrtle says, My dear, she told her sister in a high, mincing shout, most of these fellas will cheat you every time. All they think of is money. I had a woman up here last week to look at my feet, and when she gave me the bill, you'd thought she had taken my appendix out. What was the name of the woman? asked Mrs. McKee. Mrs. Eberhardt. She goes around looking at people's feet in their own homes. I like your dress, remarked Mrs. McKee. I think it's adorable. That there really stood out for me because the topic just completely changed out of nowhere, and it really shows the complete self-centeredness of the people in this, that this happens quite a bit, that there's just these gigantic um, shifts in conversation where all they're concerned, they're obviously at that point in time only thinking about themselves and then they just use the the gap in conversation to suddenly jump on a different uh, different tangent. I thought that was it's, it's really It's not really a conversation in that sense because no one's listening, because the other half of conversation is listening and mm. empathising and understanding, whereas this is just kind of talking for the sake of talking. You're just it's talking at each other. Yeah, and you're just talking at each other. And I don't know if you've ever been in conversations like that, but they're really boring. Yeah, it's quite interesting. You know, and it's... And I have had the misfortune of being caught in a conversation similar to that or observing conversations similar to that. My little sister is 15 and (laughs) had has a lot of friends. Some of them are quite vapid. And I will never forget one day... This is a couple of years ago, actually, so she would have been about 13. She had one of her friends over... And I kid you not, this girl talked nonstop for five minutes straight, telling a story. And then she ended it like this. Uh-huh, it was hilarious. Hilarious. And I stopped and I said, what? <laughs> Is that word? But see, but see what you've just done there. You've described through narrative that. So we're yeah. able to get much, a much deeper situation because we're able to see your second person experience of that, and it was which is much better than the third person story about it. And this, my friends, is what the English teachers are constantly bombarding you with: the "show me, do not tell me." Yes. So, uh, yes. for any oh, listeners out there that are, you know, doing your eleven, your twelve, English or whatever, one, you will survive. <laughs> you will not die at the end of the HSC. No, you but won't. number two, this is what your teacher is talking about. Don't say that your character is this, this, and this. Describe through narrative. Describe through... If someone's nervous, don't say they're nervous. Say that they pulled uncomfortably at the at their collar as their chest grew red or something like that. You know? Say things like that. Don't... Tips don't for Don't cre- do what so many people do. Tips for creative writing by Victoria. Tips for creative writing yeah. by, by F. Scott Fitzgerald. Really? Yes, true, but, you know, articulated by Victoria. Catholics read. Yeah. <laughs> creative writing by Victoria. Um, How to survive your HSC. No, you won't die. I barely survived. Don't listen to me. So, Victoria, was there anything that you wanted to um, speak about with the book? Because I know this was your book. And I've like, just spent the I last don't know. I and this, like... is, this is the love affair of your life, quite frankly, too. <laughs> I love this book so much to the point where, and I did warn Luke and Kiara beforehand that I have so much to say that I'll probably end up saying nothing. And <laughs> I, I feel like this is a prophecy that will be fulfilled. Um, no, don't make it self-fulfilling. Go, Victoria. <laughs> We're just not going to talk. We're just, uh, no, you need to talk. You need to talk. Oh, they're looking at me like, <laughs> with pursed mouths. Um, okay. Um, really, I just want to talk about the literary quality of this book, but there's a, a lot of other things we can talk about. We can talk about 
um, the symbolism in the book. We can talk about, actually, something that really intrigued me when I was doing my thesis on these two, mainly on Zelda, actually, his wife, who has a very tragic story in herself, uh, in her own life. And Daisy Buchanan is actually based on her, more or less. In fact, F. Scott Fitzgerald stole parts of her diary to put into his book. So when you read about the part... Um, is that in Tremalchio? Tremalchio. Oh, we'll also talk about Tremalchio as well. There are so many things we could talk about, but no, basically... We'll, we'll leave that for now, yeah. Um, Daisy uh, randomly tells Nick... Actually, this is another example of the vapid conversation. They're talking about something really, really, really serious about Daisy's life of life of nothingness. And then she starts talking about the baby or something like that. And um, basically, she says, do you know what I said when she was born? I said... You know, is it a boy or a girl? The nurse said it was a girl. And I said, I hope she'll be a um, a little fool or something like that. And that's what uh, F. Scott's wife actually said when she gave birth to their daughter. Um, he stole it straight from her it's mouth. So tragic, that Yeah, part. it's really sad. Um, and F. Scott a lot is based on both... Um, F. Scott's based on this. No, Jay, but also Nick are both based on F. Scott. But something I did want to talk about is the fact that Many, many academics have decided to talk about F. Scott Fitzgerald's background as being he was raised Catholic and how this has affected all his liter- literature till his death. I didn't know this. We didn't know this, by, by the way. way. Yeah. No? Hey, really? No, I didn't. No. Oh, okay. Well, this, was, this, is, this is something I was, I was aware of as I was doing my research, but it was uh, um, unfortunately not related to what I wanted to talk about. So when I was procrastinating from doing my proper research, I would research this. And so he was um, raised Catholic. And um, from a very early age, decided to give it up. He was maybe 13 or 14. Um, But it has persisted, as some would say, in the same sort of manner. And I'm going to go super non-smart here. Um, People have said the same sort of thing as uh, Bruce Springsteen, as in he's he's okay, turned yeah. away from the faith, but it is still very prevalent in his music mm. and or his like work. Or like Martin Scorsese. You watch any yes. Martin Scorsese films, there's very, very clear themes that would only yeah. be only be ever be thought about or, you know, viewed from that particular light from someone who had a background in Catholicism. Yeah. That you actually see that a lot with a lot of some of the a great of artists. artists. They're I, actually because, ex-Catholics. Because Catholicism has the definitive view of the human person, which art aims to get to. I mean, I could talk about that for a while and there's a great series of blog posts that I could link to. But anyway, Ooh. go on, Victoria. Yeah, anyway, and so um, there's so much academia on the fact of how this has uh, influenced his life. I mean, we were talking just before we started recording about um, the character, or well, not even the character, um, of Dr. Eckelberg, the, the glasses, the massive glasses that overlook the whole happenings um, in the Valley of Ashes, and they symbolize God, God watching his people, and people wrongly viewing those eyes as judgmental instead of uh, benevolent and all-seeing. But there's this book, and it's called Candles and Carnival Lights, Catholicism in F. Scott Fitzgerald, or something like that. I haven't read it yet. But the title itself is very interesting, because Candles and Carnival Lights, that's F. Scott Fitzgerald in a, in a nutshell. He was brought up by candlelight, but was seduced by carnival lights. Mm-hmm. And you can see that in the book. There's, you've got Nick Carraway, who, even at the beginning, um, forewarns us that he is disgusted with everything that happens in this book. Um, except for Gatsby, Gatsby who symbolizes hope and if you want to listen to English teachers, the American dream. I don't even want to go down that road. <laughs> um, <laughs> just oh 
Anyway, but we're Australian, so we didn't actually learn about this. No. I don't think it's in the Australian curriculum, whatever. Um, it's still a great piece of literature. And, and yeah. a great piece, a great example of American literature, too, particularly. One of the great... It's fantastic. Yeah. 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 But the book basically talks about the fact, what happens when you replace God with um, materialism, things. with eros, um, with... Uh, with anything. That's With yourself. Not, anything that's not God. Yeah, basically. basically. And um, it shows there's there's always this dichotomy, this um, uh, conflict within the self. Sometimes it's within Nick Carraway. Sometimes it's between Gatsby and something else. But it's always showing this conflict between um, materialism and um, selfishness and hope and self-giving and determination. I had a point. I can't remember what it was. But that's where I'm just going to end that. Does anyone have much to say? Well, I mean, I'm just looking at it from a historical perspective. Victoria, could you tell me when this book was published? This book 20... was published in 1925. Okay, so right at the height of the Roaring Twenties. And yeah. the Roaring Twenties are a fascinating time from a historical point of view because it was this time of absolute craziness. Yeah. Like Prohibition had War... ended. Huh? Prohibition had ended. World War had ended. No, 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 no. Prohibition was alive and well. It was alive and well. Oh, my God. There's so much alcohol in this book. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Greg Greg Gatsby was a bootlegger. Yeah, but, like, I thought that was before. No, 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 no. no. That's where he's making his money. He was a bootlegger. Um, So, anyway, um, so what was – so World War I had entered, and basically the civil – you know, the Western world was just – Scarred for like scarred uh, even up to this day by this great war, like you know, a whole generation Which of young we're men cel- were well, wiped celebrating out. Celebrating is most certainly not the right word. Commemorating yeah. the outbreak of World War One at this point in time. Yeah, and so and this 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 like it's really hard for us to gain a bit of a perspective on this as a you know because it's now just far enough removed from our history, but this. War wiped out something like you know wiped out something like one in five males in you know across Europe and America like you know something you know some some ridiculous number of young men were suddenly gone, mm. um all and the ones that were left were absolutely scarred for life mm. like C.S. Lewis was one of them Tolkien was another one like C.S. like Tolkien lost all of his friends from high school to the Great War. Um, F. Scott was in the army, but as far as somewhere he did not go to war, he was in like infantry training. Okay, similar to what I'd understand, like Wickham was in in like Pride and Prejudice. Like okay. in the army, yes, but actually had more time to talk to Southern bells and stuff like that. Yeah, no, um, and so and so the nineteen twenties was basically like the denial period. Yeah, it, when it, someone's it, grieving, it was just. La 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 la, we're going to party and everything's yeah, great, the yeah. war's over, never again, all that, yep, let's get drunk. Mm. And it brought forth this era of, of artists, writers, what have you, called the Lost Generation. F. Scott Fitzgerald was, was part of it. it. His wife, Zelda uh, Fitzgerald, was in it. Um, Hemingway mm-hmm. was there. Um, so many people, I they've just kind of... Uh, yeah. T.S. Eliot? Yep, T.S. Eliot um, was one of them. Um, you could say even C.S. Lewis was part of the tail end of that generation. You know, was part of was part of the tail end of that generation. Oh, he didn't going conform to their in- ideals, but yes, he was no. part of that that era. Yes, which is very interesting that he came out with such 
uh, life. Well, this is England and America. I suppose. England and America. And there were lots of new technologies coming out in the and in the 1920s. So The car. I need to, I need to comment on this because someone said this to me and I'd never thought about it before. The invention of the car. Was that you, Kiara? The, yeah, basically this is the beginning of motoring. Yes, and what, and what uh, impact did that have on relationships and travel and everything like that? Well, I swear it was you that was telling me this. I don't think it was me because someone was telling yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, but anyway, but you're right. But you're right. You know, the you know cars were cars were just starting. Like this is the beginning. The Model T Ford. It yeah, just sort of yeah. This is the beginning of the Model T Ford, and I mean, rich people had already been making very, very big, expensive, high-powered mm. machines before the Model T Ford. Yeah. But um, you know, this is you know for people who were wealthy and well off, this was a time. This was a great time. Mm. You know really really great time but if you were poor and destitute like all the people living in the in the the valley of ashes you know it was just misery because you had you either you you had a son who you your son either died or came home extremely damaged from the war quite a lot of them went mad because they didn't have such thing as post-traumatic stress disorder and didn't know how to treat it didn't have any way to treat shell shock was the closest thing they had well shell shock was what they used to what the shell shock is what we now call post-traumatic stress Mm. disorder um Mm. and so you it was just a really it was not a good time yeah really like it was a time of just it was a time that was just where the west the west was really really lost this whole myth of progressivism and this whole you know this whole kind of concept was it where i guess sort of ripping it back to philosophy is it where i guess this is arts related to this as well mm. i mean postmodernism had kind of started the seeds of that were in the late 19th century but do you think this has really started where it started getting its legs yeah this is where this is where post this is where i mean what ca- i mean you could if you look at the art of the time in the 1920s in addition to having stuff like Scott Fitz you know um the great gatsby and that sort of thing being written you also have on the other end of the spectrum is cubism Mm. movement yes. and art so picasso would be the prime example of cubism and what you see is fracture mm. Mm. like the, the the conception of society every everything that the west thought that they stood for things like liberty freedom um you know the onward march of progress things were going to get better there was going to be no more war and then world war one happened mm. Mm. and then that just shattered the blood, the bloodiness, the brutality, the length, the mechanization of warfare, which began with World War One, totally, totally destroyed. Just to, just to give an idea, I mean, you've <laughs> got to remember we're still dealing with the World consequences War, now. Yeah, World War One was the last of, I guess, the old style tre- trench. Well, I mean, World War Two featured trench warfare, but the old style army versus army bang going with to battle with horses and stuff like that of, but you had the, the machine of, gun yeah as you said was invented you have Tanks i mean it's made it, their this first is, appearance is, in world yeah, war yeah this II. is definitely embedded within australian culture because i mean gallipoli chemical warfare made its incept made its debut in world yeah, war one yeah like, you had this you had this situation where where you have like you were describing there you know the machine gun came into came into existence and you had hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of men who would march out of those trenches and just, and just get, be mowed down. Just yeah. get killed instantly. Mm-hmm. I mean, you never had that before. And it's understandable why this created it's it's a good thing to reflect on, I think, at this point in time when we're a hundred years on. We're still reeling from this. We're still in a situation today where the last century has been defined by the idea that we're no longer safe. 
Mm. I mean, in Australia, we are to a certain extent, but I mean, it only just got worse and worse and worse with the, the nuclear bomb, with terrorism. Oh, uh, yeah. It's... Any hope that was still around was annihilated by the bomb, Hir- Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Which yeah. was also Where, commemorated yeah. only a couple of days ago. And you know, and it, and this is this is, and this is what you got to remember too is like the, this is this book is kind of encapsulates that denial of the fact that things have radically changed. Mm. Yeah, because the nineteen, you know, the early nineteen hundreds were also a great time of great prosperity as well, and there was a the whole progressive sort of stuff. And so the nineteen twenties were almost like, you know what. That bit between 1915 and 1918, that just didn't happen. We're just going to go back to the way things were and we're going to stick our head in the sand and try and have a good time and everything's great. Progress. Mm. And really it wasn't because quite literally 1938, guess what happens again? Yeah. And do you mind, <laughs> if, I, do you mind if I make up a word? It's a bit of a macrocosm. Of a macrocosm. A macrocosm. People say microcosm. I'm going to say macrocosm. <laughs> of the human person. Mm. I mean, look at today. Look at how people go through so much trauma, especially within sexuality, especially especially within their family. How do they deal with it? They go and get blind drunk on a Saturday night. Yeah. I mean, the 1920s is a, is a macrocosm, I guess you could say, of that kind of behaviour. One could say, uh, I, I once remember hearing in a talk or something, that you find God in silence. Mm-hmm. Um, and today, in, in our day and age, but now I'm thinking, it's been for a long time, especially That's in the 20s, humans avoid silence. In any way they possibly can. In our day and age, it's raves and, like, ecstasy raves and stuff like that. Or just really having your iPod in. Like, it could be really as simple as that. Um, but back then, this is that was their way of, of blocking out God. I mean, it, it was almost quite reasonable that after the war, they did have questions about how could a loving God let this happen. But what kind of happened is that people just pointed their finger at the war, said uh, God doesn't exist, and then got rid of everything. Got rid of religion and all its goodness. Um, that, was, that, was, that was beginning to happen at the 20... At the, that's been happening since the 1700s, yeah, but it, basically. But, but they, had the something, they had something very concrete to point to yeah, now. It did. wasn't just look at history. It was and look at what happened this year, look what happened to my son. Lost, stuff like that. You know, lost gener- and, that's where, and that's where you get the lost generation coming from. And it wasn't just... It wasn't just Scott F. Fitzgerald or Ernest Hemingway. There was a bunch of other visual artists as well at the time whose names I cannot recall, but I was reading this. I've got this book at home called Viva la Repartie, which is all about witty comebacks, and there is loads of stuff from other characters in The Lost Generation mm. of that mm. particular time who were in this, who walked the same circles that Scott F. Fitzgerald did and Ernest Hemingway did. And then Scott Fitzgerald. F. Scott. I admit it is a bit unusual because usually the... Escott. The letter goes in the middle, not the <laughs> Yeah, sorry. Sorry. I'm used to historians who have the letters in the middle. <laughs> not authors who decide to all <laughs> different and put it at the front. Um, the F stands for Francis, by the way. Oh. And I think there's um, I think there's something else in there. I think it's Francis Key Scott Fitzgerald. Gosh, what a name. I, That's it, a that name. might be wrong. I actually don't know. That's a great what? <laughs> Victoria doesn't know this? What kind we of... Should, we should wrap up. <laughs> we're, oh running, we're running very over time. Wow. Blah, 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 quickly, blah, 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 blah. Something quickly that I wanted to speak on. I will only very lightly touch on this so that no our rantings. listeners... No I'll stop you. I will not rant. Something that our listeners can uh, can look into, and it's two two things. One is, Victoria touched on it before, the uh, eyeglasses doctor advertisement. Uh, being a symbolism for God. And I think uh, I will do some shameless self-promotion here and direct you to, on Cradio, there's an article by uh, Father Robert Barron uh, in his review of this uh, of the film adaptation. 
by Baz Luhrmann of The Great Gatsby. The second thing that I wanted to talk about, and again, this is something that the reader can look through uh, or the listener here can do when they read this book. And I think it's fascinating because I think I'd have no idea about F. Scott Fitzgerald's life, but I think the way that he pours in the emotion to Gatsby, this is a man who's had his heart broken. And I think that what I think is really fascinating about this is that kept coming up uh, when I was reading this is that the experience of heartbreak, how we can, um, I guess, it's it's quite amazing. It's very emotionally involving, involved when you read about, I don't know about if women experience this when they're reading about Gatsby, but about Gatsby's reaction to things and the way that he attempts to pursue um, uh, pursue Daisy and that just that image of him reaching out towards the green light at which the end of the is done very well in the film by the way because I remember reading it and thinking what is what, he doing that's yeah. just what like some thriller zombie move or whatever but the, no, the way they no, show a, it in reach. the film is incredible yeah. um, is I think a very poor and disordered and not really like it at all but at its core it's there because it's within his human heart a analogy I think for God's relationship with his people, particularly with Israel, uh, particularly with how there's this relationship that God has with Israel who has turned away from him and his love and how he goes to extraordinary lengths to try and win her back and win his people, that is all of us, back. And he becomes man and we crucify him. Um I mean, it's not a perfect analogy because no. he's an adulterer, and <laughs> Gatsby, and he does a lot of things that are wrong be- and does a lot of things that's bad. That's because he's fully human, not human and divine. Exactly. Yeah. And there's this core, but in the core of it, this yearning for her, for Daisy is just amazing. I think it's really fascinating to, to read and really heart-wrenching to read his, um, his experience of this. But I think it, it can, if you allow it, elevate you to not a perfect analogy, but an idea of what it could possibly be like, because, I mean, God in his divinity doesn't have emotions per se, but it can bring us to a kind of idea of of how much God yearns for us in spite of our sin and in spite of our constant turning away from him. Um, and that is where I will finish. I think that's um, a great place to finish. Yeah, I think mm. it's this is a great book. I definitely recommend it, unless you don't like first person narrative. But even if you don't, even if you don't <laughs> like, quite frankly, even if you don't like first person narrative, this is still a fan. This is one of the best examples of it mm. out there. Mm. So it's actually relatively enjoyable. It's good. Much better than it's looking good. for Ella Brandy. Just saying. <laughs> I would particularly recommend it if you're one of those people that, um, and I don't mean this in a creepy way, like to people watch. <laughs> the no, stalkers. No, 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 I don't mean it in that way at all. Someone, if you're very sensitive to other people's mannerisms and their their personalities, and you just find people interesting. interesting, this is a fantastic book to read because no character is left without a a very good um, idea of who they are. Mm. It's it's no stone unturned with each and every one of the characters, yeah. which is one of the fabulous. Like really, my ideal radio cast would be me reading the book. But, like, just read it yourself. It's incredible. Okay. And did we have so a couple of other things to wrap up? I believe we have a double confirmation on the we meaning. Have, no, <laughs> no, we'll no, next time. Episode, next, next episode. episode, next episode. Next episode. So in the next episode, we will be reading Kiara is beaming. What? At this point in time. We're reading the Communist Manifesto. That's right. We are reading the, <laughs> communist, reading manifesto. the communist Manifesto. Catholics read the Communist Manifesto. Yes, you heard it here first. Happening. Finally. <laughs> 
somewhere on the internet, there is going to be a page titled Catholics Read the Communist Manifesto. It's finally happening. I think the internet has been waiting for this. Yeah. <laughs> no, not literally, but, you know, maybe it didn't realise it. Anyway, so next week, next time, the Communist Manifesto, we're reading it and it'll be half an hour of us ranting, which will be yeah, Luke, you're not getting all the rant time. Just no, no, saying, no, no, I'm no, fighting sure. you for no, rant time. This is for rant time. This is okay, rant yes. time. Okay, so goodbye. Goodbye. That was an episode of Catholics Free from cradio.org.au.